you. I love that. We live in a world now, we need a gadget to find a gadget. I guess that's called a gidget. Never mind. Sorry. (laughs) Greetings from Culver City, California. And you say, what in the world are you talking about? We have a wonderful church in Culver City, California, which is right outside of Los Angeles. And my wife and I had the extreme privilege of being with them this past weekend. And they are doing amazing. Uh, just, they're just barely three years old. They're, they're right at about 400 people after three years. Let me just tell you. And that just, that just does not happen, particularly in that part of the world. And what Pastor Dehan and Pastor Julie are building is truly remarkable. I mean, it really is GCC West. I mean, you look out there and you just see all of these different kind of folk, and it is just absolutely marvelous. And I, I, I went up, I had finished preaching on Sunday morning, and then next thing I know, I've got Chuck Harris and his wife coming up to me. I mean, this is like old home week coming. They were, they were out there taking their, taking their child to UCLA, right? Yep. yep. And so I uh, just felt right at home. But anyway, welcome. Uh, greetings, rather, from Culver City. You know, every generation has trends in names. Anybody here looking to, maybe you're pregnant or uh, maybe you have grandchildren coming and you're trying to figure out what are we going to name these kids? And there really are trendy names that come. And so I, I did a little research today to find out what are the, what are the, trendy, what are the trendy names for 2017. And here's the top five lists for boys. Now, I, I look at this name and I'm thinking these sound a lot like more, uh, how do I say this, lighter complected names <laughs> that people would be using. And so I, I, I just pulled the list. And so blame Google, don't blame me. But anyway, here's the list. Top five, Noah. Can you imagine that? that that's, that's the top name for a boy in 27. Noah. Noah. Liam. I have certain skills. Mason, Jacob, and William, all right? They are the top five boys' names. Top five girls' names, Emma, Olivia, Sophia, Ava, and Isabella. Isn't that interesting? Now, I don't know that you find any interest in that at all, but I I think it's pretty cool. But you listen to a name, and you you hear a certain name, and it begins to evoke something to you or for you. Iconic names of people. Lincoln. I mean, I mean, you say Lincoln and most of us don't think Lincoln Navigator, the car. But most of us are hearkening back to that great emancipator and that great leader. Jobs. Steve Jobs. I mean, now you can actually pay $1,200 for your phone. Not only is a gadget, gadget, gidget, gadget thing, but now it's a real expensive gadget. Let me tell you. Steve Jobs, Buffett, we think entrepreneur, money, Elvis, all right? We won't even go there. But we hear, but we hear names of people and it immediately something comes to us. Corporations have names. Apple. I mean, we don't even think about it in terms of fruit anymore. <laughs> Apple, what it means for us today. McDonald's. Oh, And yet we don't think about two brothers out in San Bernardino in 1953 or 54 with their one restaurant. We think about the 
multinational conglomerate that is now McDonald's, Wendy's. Said, Pastor Jim, you must be hungry. I guess I am. Anybody know where the word Wendy, why it's called Wendy's? The founder's daughter's name was or is Wendy. And it's also the home of the Frosty, very important. I just have one question about Frosties. Do you use a spoon or a straw? Because I haven't really figured out which way it goes. Excuse me? See, we're completely divided right here. We need to bring some unity into this thing. All right. So we, we're going both ways. All right. A French fry. Okay. But a name immediately brings with it distinction. And with that distinction, to some degree, a description of who that person is or what that organization is or who that company might be. And in that, there is a power to name. And there can be inherent power in a name. You know, a common concept in history is knowing the name of something gives one's power over that thing or person. In other words, you name it and you have authority and dominion over it. Children don't choose their names, do they? No. I mean, parents choose a name for a child because, number one, they won't let you leave the hospital until you choose one and put something on the birth certificate. But there's an indication there of dominion, of authority, of creation that comes from the parents. And as such, they have been given the right to do what? Name their offspring. Okay? And we find, of course, this concept occurs in many cultures, not just in Christian culture. But it also occurs in many cultures around the world. Islam, Judaism, Egyptian, Vedic, and Hindu cultures all believe that in this naming, there is power and there's authority. Think of Genesis, and we think of naming immediately. God said, let there be light. Now, most of the time, we just think about light being formed out of darkness. But think about this just a minute. God named it before he created it. He said, well, duh. And it wasn't just so that it could be inscripturated and you and I could read about it sometime later. But there was something even connected with the fact that God had a name for it before he ever even spoke it into existence. It's an interesting concept. It seemed to be a necessary step for creation. We move over to the second chapter and we see that in God's crowning achievement in Adam, we know that he... God brought the animals to Adam, and who did what? What happened? Adam, he named them. But part of that was part and parcel, if you wish, with the fact that God had given Adam what? Dominion. Had given him authority. And so in that authority, there was a naming that happened. But there's a power to name, but then there is the power of a name as well. God, Genesis, uh, Exodus 3 and 4, speaking with his servant Moses, sending him to do the absolute impossible. And finally Moses said, what do I tell them when I get there? I mean, is your name like Bubba or Bartholomew or 
Snooky, or what, what, do I, what do I say to them when they say, who is this God? And God says, you just tell them I'm a verb. I am, I was that I was, I is that I is, and I'm going to be what I'm going to be. It was important though. You see, in ancient Egyptians believed that one gained power over a God if one knew his name. We're even told that the name of the deity who cared for the city of Rome was a secret known only to its rulers. It was thought that if anyone else knew the name of that deity, then they would have authority over that God. Interesting. According to the Jewish religion, the name of God was even so holy it was not even to be said out loud. And one of the likely reasons for this is that very thought in Egyptian thought was that somehow by declaring the name of it, you had authority over it. That was one of the reasons behind this. And yet for our sake, God gives us names to describe himself. Aren't you glad of this? We have a name, Jesus. Jesus. And we know there's unique power in what? In that name. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above what? Every name. There we are. That at the what? The name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know coming out of the 5th century, the desert fathers actually had what they called the Jesus prayer. That somehow that by repeating the name of Jesus or God over and over and over again, somehow it brought them into a place of religious ecstasy. That somehow it was in the repetition of this name over, incessantly spoken, that somehow profound insight would come to the believer. This practice is still continued today and where the church divided between East and West, the Russian Orthodox still practice this Jesus prayer. But yet we know that God has not just called us into some type of mantra of just repeating his name over and over again. Now we, we know there's something unique about the name of Jesus. You say God and God is for the most part pretty generic. It means different things to different people. Everyone has some construct of the divine. They have some idea of who God is, maybe from the religion that they practice. Maybe it's something, some, again, a construct, an invention of their own mind of intelligent design. And yet we're giving a proper noun, Jesus. And yet we know it's just the repetition of that word over and over again, devoid of real relationship. It's just that. They're what? They're just words. And yet... How are you going to deal with the sons of Sceva? Invoking the name of Jesus, it says they did what? They had a pretty successful ministry of casting out devils. Now, we know that they had a really bad day one time. God had finally had enough, and he, he sent them away unclothed and a little embarrassed by the whole thing. Matthew 7 
Jesus says this, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works, what, in your name? What does it say? Depart from me, I knew you not. Interesting. And yet, we can see miracles still done just on the power of a name. Isn't that interesting? We used to sing this song back in the day. It was one of these old charismatic ditties, Jesus, name above all names. See, some of you have been around for a moment. Jesus, something about that name. There we go. And we know God partly by his names. Although they're all incomplete. That's why there's so many of them in Scripture. And for the most part, they're given for our sake anthropomorphically so that we can somehow understand who God is and how God relates to us. I believe we talked about this here on a Wednesday night some time ago. Elohim, the God above all gods. Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. El Shaddai, Almighty. Jehovah Rapha, our healer. Jehovah Shalom, our peace. Jehovah Shammah, our God who is present. Jehovah Yahweh, our loving, covenant-keeping God. Aren't you glad that God gives us these multiple names because in these names we get a greater insight into what? Who God really is. And yet, once again, let me just say that reducing it just to a name doesn't ever get it done. It's no wonder that the writer of Proverbs... It says, encourages us to remember that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. That in times of need, that's where we're safe, Proverbs 18.10. But we also know that the name of a thing portends and prophesies something about it. We name our children many times according to what we are desiring for their life. I have never run across an Ichabod in our culture. The glory has departed. Just not a name that you want to give a child that you want something good to flow out of their life. And so we name our children with these names that we go and we look in the Bible and this is what we want for our children. And so we grab these names hoping and desiring and prophesying something into that child by naming them that way. We know that God, many times when God comes and makes himself known to a man or woman and in that revelation, many times there is a new assignment that comes with it. We see this throughout the Bible. Abram, father to Abraham, father of many. Sarai, Sarah, Saul, Paul. We see throughout scripture as God makes himself known, he comes and he changes a name. This is what you were, but now this is what you are. Aren't you glad that God renames us? And let me just tell you, many of us have some names we're trying to run away from. Come on. I mean, if you didn't get them in junior high, you know the little names that, you know, you kind of, kind of get attached to you and you're trying to run away from? Some of us move, and move away. We leave the state to try to get away from some of these names. And if it's not the nicknames that came maybe from jesting children, there are these names that the devil wants to give us. 
liar, loser. You know what I'm talking about. And yet, God gives us different names. Aren't you glad of that? A name is an identifier. But in that identification, there is a reputation. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1 says, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. You hear a name and attached to that name is history, is reputation. And whether it's the name of a city, a nation, a business, a person, how many of you know how difficult it is to shake a bad reputation? Oh, yeah, man, I, I tell you, I've eaten there once before. Don't, uh-uh, ooh, they're bad. Domain, domain, you don't want to go there. That's what we named the cafeteria in college, by the way. But that reputation, what's in a name? What's in a name? What's in the name Grace Covenant Church? Little history lesson. This church has not always been Grace Covenant Church. At its inception, this church was part of a ministry known as Maranatha. Maranatha was a great group of guys. They planted churches, but they, they were real big on campus ministry. And the original name of this church was Maranatha Church of Capitol Hill. But somewhere around 1991, there was some changes that were occurring in the larger ministry association and family there, and the name of this church changed at that time to Grace Covenant Church. Now, this church has had another name since that time. Around 2003 or four. We were meeting in Herndon, Virginia, in a place called Huntmar Park. And we had the opportunity to go to Dominion High School, where we now have our Sterling campus and congregation. And at the time that we moved down there, the name of our apostolic, our family of churches, was known as Morning Star. Morning Star Ministries. Not the Morning Star in Charlotte, North Carolina, but Morning Star. And so in order to be identified with that group, the same way that this church was originally Maranatha Church, we changed the name of the church at that time to Metro Morningstar. We wanted to connect ourselves to the, to, the, to the city, Pastor Brett's vision of winning the city. Our byline at that time was peoples, cities, and nations. Metro Morningstar. How, how, how many of you remember the Metro Morningstar days that are in the room? All right. Now, as these things tend to happen, not too long after we changed the name of Met to Metro Morningstar, <laughs> the big shots in our apostolic, no, I'm sorry, the brothers in our apostolic family <laughs> decided it's time to change our name to better reflect who we are, excuse me, I'm still choked up about it <laughs> because I helped do the design work <laughs> to do the new logo and everything for Metro Morningstar. And so 
I'll never forget this. Pastor Brett and I were actually at a meeting, and we heard after the fact, oh, we're not Morningstar anymore. We're every nation. Well, thanks for telling us. So now we had a church called Metro Morningstar. We were part of every nation. It didn't make any sense anymore. So as God graciously gave us his property here on Brookfield Corporate in 2007 as we moved into this building, we graciously, God graciously allowed us to go back to Grace Covenant Church. And not just because it was practically feasible in that moment as we were changing signage and moving anyway, it was just right because Grace Covenant Church better reflected who we were, who we are as a people. You know, it's interesting that my wife and I, we were part of the first four or five families in a church in North Carolina. And that church was originally known as Manna Church, M-A-N-N-A. And I remember being on the leadership team when that church changed its name, ironically enough, to Grace Covenant Church. Imagine as Pastor Brett and I began to come into fellowship in the mid-90s. I was a senior pastor there. He was a senior pastor here. And we're both pastoring a Grace Covenant Church. And, of course, at the time that those name changes occur, we had no idea that either one of us even existed. Interesting. But what's in a name? Well, first of all, we are a church. We have church in our name. Now, we'll unpack this a little bit more in, in some other sessions, but we're not, we don't call ourselves a fellowship. We don't call ourselves a tabernacle or a house or anything like that. And let me say that if that's the name of, of a church, there's nothing wrong with that. There are lots of great churches that are fellowships or tabernacles or some other type of organization. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, we, we kind of like church here. We like church not as a geographical location or a meeting time, of course, but for a distinction, an ecclesia, a very different kind of assembly, the church as a divine idea. That's why we put it right in our name, the church. Why do we use it? Because Jesus used the word church. Paul addresses the church in the epistles. His glory is seen in the church, Ephesians 3.21. His wisdom is made known to and through the church, Ephesians 3.10. He is intimate with his church, Ephesians 5.32. And it is what he is the head of, Colossians 1.8. The church then is something that we want to readily say, yes, that's what we are. So there's no question whether somebody rides by and sees it on 28, whether they grab it off the, uh, off, off the intrawebs, whatever it is, we know now this is what this people, this is what this people are, their church. Again, we'll, we'll look at that word more deeply in a couple of weeks. And then the word covenant. Now, that's a word that, for the most part, has practically become arcane. You use the word covenant now, and you really only hear it a couple of times. You hear it in a wedding ceremony. You hear the word covenant, but that's about the only time that you really hear it outside of the fact that you can't have a clothesline at your house. They're the covenants in your HOA or your POA. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. 
that you get this sheaf of documents and you have to sign off that we agree I'm going to get my garbage can in in four hours and I'm not going to have chickens and I'm not going to, you know what I'm talking about. I sit on the board of our local POA. We get real excited about stuff like this. And we use the word covenants a lot. But if you really look at this word, it, for most people today, it really doesn't mean much anymore. And yet God is always related to man and to his church by means of covenant. And whether or not we understand it, whether or not we use the words, God is a covenant God. He began relationship with his people on the basis of what? Covenant. And he maintains that relationship with you and with me by means of covenant. You see, God is a covenant-keeping God even when we don't keep our part of the covenant because God cannot be God. And we know that there is an old covenant which has not been replaced. It's been perfectly fulfilled by the new. Scripture tells us very clearly, Hebrews 8, it says, the time is coming, quoting the book of Isaiah. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And it will not, and with the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. And it goes on, this is the covenant I will make. I'll put their laws in their minds. I'll write them on the hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And I remember, it says that I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. It's that last one right there that sets this new covenant above the old. And the fact that it's not on the, the, the sacrifice of bulls and heifers and, and shit and, and blood and the priesthood and all of this stuff. But now, because we've had a great high priest that's gone through, he has become, come on, the mediator of this new covenant perfectly. We'll talk about that next week. But this week, I want to talk about the word grace just for a few minutes. From the Greek word kindness, meaning life, kindness. Almost everyone knows this amazing grace, how sweet the sound, the grace of God. And the grace of God is truly, it's, it is, it's the glue. The grace of God is the very essence of how God has extended himself now to you and to me. It's grace that everything else flows from. This is it. There are many theologians that hold that it's the grace of God, which is the central idea of the new covenant. It's a central understanding, a central understanding of how we relate to Jesus. It is by his charis. It is by his grace. My father-in-law, who's gone on to be with the Lord, he loved the grace of God. And part of the reason he loved the grace of God, because he realized it was by that grace that God had set him free. And sent him on a path not to destruction but to life. He loved grace. He would say, James, I love the grace of God. He said, I just, it makes everything work. And he could, and he could pontificate about grace and he could go 
forever just talking about grace. So how in 10 minutes do you even talk about grace? I'll read what some others have said about it. The very center and core of the whole Bible is a doctrine of the grace of God. Unquote. Quote again, grace is free sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Grace is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. Grace is unconditional love toward a person who does not deserve it. You've heard that grace is getting what we don't deserve as opposed to mercy, mercy which is not getting what we do deserve. Yet others have used this shorthand for grace. It's mercy, not merit. It's what we desperately need, but we can't acquire on our own. Yet grace is everything that God is, and we're not. Michael Horton writes this. He says, in grace, God gives nothing less than himself. Grace, then, is not a third thing or substance mediating between God and sinners. It is Jesus Christ in redeeming action. I love that. Jesus Christ in redeeming action. Grace is in the past. It's grace that is sustaining our present. And it's grace that guarantees our future. It is God being consistent to us across every moment of our life. And we live every day by the grace of God. Whether we acknowledge it or not, every day that there's air in your lungs, every day that you're not getting, the blowback of the fallout, of your offense toward a holy, perfect, righteous God. Everything that we get that's not judgment is as a direct result of the grace of God. Oh, Pastor Jim, I don't know that I've ever experienced the grace of God. You ain't dead. You've experienced it. It's real simple. It's the very basis of our salvation. It's not just your desire, but it forms the very core of how we relate to God initially and then beyond. Ephesians chapter 2 is great because of his great love for us. God is rich in mercy. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is what? It is by grace. There's that word. You have been saved. And he he raises us up with Christ, seats us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his what? Of his grace. You realize that in this age, we don't even know the value of what this grace is? It'd be like you giving your child the new iPhone X, whatever it is, thousand dollars and they take it in the bathtub with them they have no idea the value of it it's not until they go out and they buy their iphone 25 with their own money 
that they begin to get some understanding of the value of a thing. You realize from the vantage point of this life, we don't really fully understand grace. We don't really get it yet. But this incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the what? The gift of God. Oh, Pastor Jim, I, I, my, my life was a wreck and, and I called on God and he showed up. You think that's what happened? You really think that's how it worked? Let me just tell you. It was the grace of God that allowed you to reach out. It's the grace of God that allows you to continue to be in fellowship with him. Oh, Jesus, I love you. I need you. Let me just tell you. It's the grace of God that empowers you to even follow hard after him. Grace is not just the gas in the engine. It's the, it's the oil in the engine. It makes it everything work. Grace is the basis not only of our salvation, but our sanctification. Titus 2, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us. Listen to this. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Oh, no, Pastor Jim, I, Pastor Jim you don't, I, I'm just disciplined. No, you're not. It's the grace of God that allows you to say no. Like last night when I was coming back from our church in Harrisonburg. And I knew that this was a divine location because you turned at the Krispy Kreme to get to this church. That is the landmark. The Krispy Kreme. And as I was leaving last night, Pastor Sean and Pastor Sean... The light was on. And you know what? My wife wasn't with me. That voice, I just shut it down. And I was thinking I could do a whole dozen on the way home. I got over an hour in the car and they're hot and they're easy to get down. I could probably finish off the whole box on the way back to the mountain. And yet, the grace of God said, no. And I only bought three. And I only ate one. Holy Ghost happy dance. And my wife knows I'm not lying because the two are still in the box on the counter. And you can say, wow, Pastor Jim, you're a nail. Well, if I really was, I would have just driven by something. <coughs> Excuse me. Grace is part of our identification. 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Aren't you glad you're being identified not by what you were? And maybe that what you were is just 60 minutes old. But aren't you glad you're being identified differently now? By that grace. Our justification 
is a result of grace. Romans 5, we've been justified through faith. We have peace with God. And we've been gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Grace gives you something to stand on. Grace changes our behavior. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. This is our boast, our conscience. Test, our conscience testifies that we've, been, we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to what? God's grace. It's the grace of God that tempers our speech. Colossians 4, 6, let your, let your speech always be what? Gracious. It's our strength for living. 2 Timothy 2, be strengthened and by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. How many of you need your heart strengthened in these days? What is it that strengthens our heart? Cardio, grab it. But it's the grace of God. Our serving. 1 Peter 4, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully. Administering what? God's grace in its various forms. This is why we need to be ever increasing consumers of grace. Because it's only that which we consume is that which we can do what? Export. If you don't import it, you can't export it. It's real simple. Our sufficiency, 2 Corinthians 12. Paul writing, please take this away from me. What did God say? My grace is sufficient. Wow. Chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Suffering. Not a very popular topic for conferences. Can you imagine this one? Come to Detroit, suffering, 2018. <laughs> List of speakers. Somehow I hope the registration's really cheap because I don't think people are going to be flocking to go to a suffering conference. But what is our response to difficulty and suffering? We get grace to help in time of need, it says in Hebrews 4.16. 1 Peter 5.10, when you have suffered a little while, this is a passage we need to rip out of the Bible. When you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then our participation in mission is as a result of the grace of God. It's not just a great idea. It's not just, it's not just great vision casting. It's not just a great missional strategy. Listen to this. But as recipients of grace, we're privileged to serve as those agents of grace. We receive grace, Acts eleven twenty three. We continue in grace, Acts thirteen forty three, and we're called to testify to the grace of God, Acts twenty twenty four. A lot of scripture, I realize. Just want to let you know, I'm not making this up. And it's that gospel of the grace of God that is the message that we are entrusted with. It is first and foremost a gospel of grace. And it begins and it ends with grace.
the very last verse in the Bible. Revelation 22, 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Talk about Alpha, Omega, beginning, end, everything in between. There it is right there. And that word grace is the very first word in our name. Grace Covenant Church. Because we don't believe that there could be possibly be a covenant without grace. And we sure as heck know there will be no church without grace. It begins there. And it ends there. John 1.16 Come, come, come on up, Pastor Sean. Through Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. We've all received grace upon grace. If you've ever received an email or communication from me, that is always my closing signature. It's grace. Beginning, middle, and end. What's in a name? Grace, Covenant Church. Pray with me.